Father, we, we pray that you would help us, coming from different places, different contexts, different weeks, different backgrounds, different personalities. We pray that you would help us to understand what your word is saying. But more than that, we pray with your help. We might apply it. We might change how we think and say change how we live. In Jesus' name. Amen. Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circling, moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, he is dead. Put crepe bows round the white necks of the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east, my west. My working week and my Sunday rest. My noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now, but out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood, for nothing now can ever come to any good. It's a famous poem by A.H. Auden, often heard at funerals. And for my generation, at least, it's particularly famous because it was in uh, four weddings and a funeral as part of the funeral. But also more recently, if you're a Gavin and Stacey fan, it was at Nessa's wedding, um, which was hilarious. <laughs> but it's bleak, though, isn't it? It's a very bleak poem. In the face of death, life as you know it is on hopeless pause. The clocks are to be stopped. The world is silence. Communication closed down. Distractions put on hold. A, a sense that, that the world has ended because, because we're dealing with death and death, in a sense, is the end. At least in a worldview where, where what you see is what you get. This is all there is. And of course death is painful and of course we grieve. We've no doubt all been affected by death. Someone's death hurts us. It feels so wrong. It feels so unnatural. Death is the imposter. It's an inevitable imposter. But it's an imposter nonetheless. And in a bizarre twist of events, um, today is exactly a decade from the day my dad died and I actually spoke on these verses at his funeral. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning. Maybe you're just looking in on things. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you're wondering, how does being a Christian un affect an understanding of death, your feelings about death? How do you grieve as a believer? I think they're great questions, and I hope we'll touch on them as we look our way through these verses. But do glance back down to chapter 4 of Thessalonians with me. We're continuing our series where we've been for the last um, few weeks. And first point from chapter 4... If you like the first title, as Paul explains them, is thinking rightly about Christ's return. Do you remember this young church in Thessalonica that Paul is writing to? It seems they got into a muddle and worrying about what happens when someone dies, particularly what happens if you die before Jesus returns. They knew he was going to return. They believed that. We've seen that truth underpinning the letters to some extent. Do you remember in chapter 1, we were thinking about their hope they had. 1 verse 10, they were those who turn, serve, wait. And so they know there's hope for the believer. They hope he will return. In this messy, mucked up world, they're clinging on to that. But, 
But what happens to those dear friends at church? Maybe you've attended their funerals. What's become of them if Jesus hasn't come back, they're saying? Are they lost forever? Will they miss out because they're not here when he returns? And so Paul seems to write these words in chapter 4 as some way to go towards an answer to those kinds of ideas. That seems to be the kind of muddle they've got into. As I mentioned, speaking on these verses at Dad's funeral, they were verses that brought a profound comfort. Why? Because for the Christian, death is not hopeless. Do you see that there in verse 13? Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Do Christians grieve? Paul says, of course we grieve. We must grieve. Anyone who's had someone close to them die will know all about grief. Maybe that's even you now. Maybe stuff going on in your life. That looming dark cloud that lingers over the little things in life that trigger the memories, the thoughts, the reflections, the what-ifs. C.S. Lewis, who said after his wife Joy had died, he said, her absence is like the sky. It's spread over everything. And we said last week, we're relational beings. We're made in the image of our creator. We are made to love. And so when those relationships are severed because of death, of course we're going to grieve. It's natural. But Paul says we grieve with hope in verse 13. Now, hope is a funny word in the Bible. Basically because it doesn't, we don't really use the word hope in this sense anywhere else apart from As we read the Bible, hope in this sense, as Paul writes, is hope with a certainty. It's something sure and firm. It's something you can trust in. It's something reliable, something even you can build upon. And why do we say that? Is Paul arrogant? Where does this certainty come from? Well, see how he continues in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, the idea, our hope is not just touching wood. It's not just crossing fingers or superstition or blind, unfounded, not able to face reality, cheery optimism. We're not just whistling in the dark. Paul says it's hope because of Jesus, because he died and rose again. For the Christian, hope is certain because we know something will happen because something already has happened. We have hope because of Easter, says Paul. It would be cruel if he gave them false hope, false assurance, false confidence, false certainty. But for their guarantee, though, he says, look at Easter Sunday. He he points them to the empty tomb in their minds. He says, remember Jesus rising again. A fact in history, attested to by many, changed and transformed the life of multitudes. Something changed the disciples. Something transformed them. Something turned their lives upside down. And so Paul says we grieve with hope because Jesus rose again. And if death could not hold him and the tomb could not hold him, well, for those in Christ, says Paul, death will not hold them. The tomb will not hold them. And so we grieve with hope. I do remember, as if it was yesterday, a couple of weeks before he died, 
um, visiting him at the John Radcliffe, it was very striking. He said he was at peace. He said he had an assurance, a calm assurance, and he was ready to go. And it was very humbling and quite distressing because I didn't really want it to be his time. I didn't particularly want him to be ready to go. But he said he was ready not because he thought he was good enough, not because he had notched up the proverbial air miles to get him to heaven. I guess in one sense it would be very easy to think that. He was, he was a good person in the world's eyes. He worked at the council for many years. He helped people around Oxford. He was building a new youth club in the community up in Wood Farm. He was doing foster relief at home. He would serve at church. He would preach at church. He would a husband, a father, a grandfather. But he, he was ready because he knew where he was going, because he trusted in Jesus being raised again. That's the Christian hope. It's extraordinary. It's, it's not because people have done enough, but it's because Christ has done enough. That's why we grieve with hope. And so it's striking, isn't it? The word that Paul uses, did you spot it as we read it? It's the word he uses to describe death is to be asleep. He says it three times. And when he says it more than once, we're meant to take notice. So verse 13, those who sleep in death. Or verse 14, those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, those who have fallen asleep. He's, he's slowly repeating himself so we don't miss it. And we do miss it because we use that kind of language now. And we talk about going to the vet and having the dog put to sleep. And we all know the dog's not really being put to sleep. The dog is dying. But the point Paul is making here for the believer, well, for the believer it is falling asleep. Because when you fall asleep, you wake up again. The alarm clock goes off. The sun shines through your window. The, the milkman clatters past your door. You hear noise downstairs. You hear small children who wake you up. And so for the Christian, death becomes but sleep. And so the tomb becomes but a bed. And Christ's trumpet call is the alarm clock. Have a look at 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, those who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And it's Bible language and there's lots of imagery going on and it all sounds a bit weird to our ears, doesn't it? But essentially he's saying, Christ will come back at the appointed time and then those who are dead in Christ, Christians who have already died, will, will be summoned and raised like Christ was from the dead, as if they are sleeping. And those who are still alive, verse 17, will then be with him as well, raised with him. And clouds signify being with God, signify God's presence. That is, we will be with God again. If you know your Bibles, it's rather like the ascension in reverse. As Jesus comes back to be with his people. It sounds extraordinary, amazing thought of being in that intimacy again. The beautiful intimacy with the God who we were made for. And we think, when's it going to happen? I want to say, despite wacko speculation and theories and special knowledge and crazy ideas that some claim, the Bible's pretty silent on when it's going to happen. We can't ever be sure about a date for Christ's return. We can always be certain, though, of how to live in the light of his return. 
And that's where Paul goes now in chapter 5, 1 to 11. You see, here's the thing. When we, when we change the way we think about something, so we change the way we live. Thinking and living are tied up. And so he wants in end of chapter 4 to change the way they think. Now in 5, to live rightly in the light of Christ's return. Imagine you're sat at home. Imagine you have a book in your hands. It's a favourite novel. You're, you're reading quietly. You're enjoying just a half an hour of peace. And suddenly there's an alarm, a house alarm from next door. It starts to go off. You know that piercing noise? And you think it's a mistake, so you ignore it. Kind of carry on with your book if you can. Fingers in your ears while reading. It's hard. And you see, house alarms, when they go off by mistake, because maybe there's been a cat or a plant falling over or something, that's annoying. But house alarms are brilliant when they stop thieves and burglars breaking in and nicking your stuff. Without an alarm, a thief sneaks in at any time, unexpected, unannounced, without warning, causes damage and distress. And Jesus says, Paul says, when Jesus returns, it will be like a thief in the night. It will be unannounced. It will be unexpected. It will be without warning. He says it twice. He says it in verse 2 and in verse 4. And where detractors laugh and mock those who believe in Jesus coming back, verse 3, when they, when they scoff and they say, peace and safety, it's all going to be okay, while well, he says destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they won't escape. I want to say, if you're here this morning and you're not convinced that Jesus will come back, whether you would call yourself a believer or not, I want to humbly and carefully impress upon us the reality that Paul writes here. The Bible is quite unashamed and quite clear. That might sound rather extraordinary, but one day Jesus will return. And he will come back. He will come and finish the story. It's not something we think about that much. It's not something our culture can particularly cope with. Imagine you're on Meadow Lane just over there and you're walking. There's that huge puddle. And um, it's always there. I think they're fixing it, actually. But imagine you've got one of those huge puddle you're coming up to and you've got a, a scary cyclist charging towards you, flailing everywhere, out of control, brakes not working. They can ring their bell and they can shout, but they can't stop. And they shout, I'm coming, I'm coming, you've got to move. And you say, do you know what? In your worldview, that's fine. In your idea, that's fine. But for me, I don't really think you're coming towards me and you're going to hit me. There's not going to be a collision, my friend. We're going to be okay. That doesn't really fit my view of reality. You have your truth, I'll have my truth. Well, so as we read the Bible, talk of Jesus coming back, talk of this collision, it's not something we take or leave, according to the scriptures. Unashamedly, again and again and again, says it's inevitable. He's returning. He will return. One day it will be seen by all. The culmination of history as we know it. John Updike was an American author who died a few years ago. I'm very well respected. He said, our brains are no longer conditioned for reverence and awe. We cannot imagine the return of Christ that would not be cut down to size by the televised evening news. And maybe we struggle with this whole idea of Jesus coming back. 
Maybe it's not something we dwell on that much. But the Bible paints the picture it will be awesome. It will affect everyone. Be universal. Do you know hope, says Paul? Do you want hope? Well, look to Easter. Look to Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his return. And that's the only place you will find hope in a broken and messy world. The new heavens and the new earth will be full of all kinds of people from every walk of history, every, every walk of life, every era of history, every tribe and tongue and nation, and yet all united in having trusted in Jesus and the risen Christ. It's inevitable. What about tomorrow? What about tomorrow morning? What about Monday what about the mundane mess of normal life? Is this just a big picture idea that we can't really cope with? It doesn't really land anywhere. We need, we need a Martin Grote to make it real for us, to work out what it actually means, to make a difference. Does it really affect the, the nitty-gritty day-to-day life of, of normal stuff, of the week that stretches out ahead of you? Well, Paul, as Jesus did, says when Christ returns, it will be like this thief in the night. It is going to be unpredictable. There will be no warning. There is no chance to sort out your life at the 11th hour. Because to be blunt, says Paul, you don't know when the 11th hour is. And so sort your life out now. Verse 4 onwards, that's the rest of the passage. Live in a way that is ready for him now. Because you can't wait till the 11th hour. Because you don't know when it is. Which means it's a profoundly practical truth for us. Not just something to believe or a doctrinal tick box or we're a bit more clued up or sound in terms of theology. But at the heart of the section, verse 4 to 8, as I read it through in a second, just have a think about the new identity of the believer and how the return of Christ impacts who we now are. He says, your allegiance has changed. You've moved from darkness to light. You've moved from the night time to the daytime. Let me read it again, verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Do you see the imagery he's using, he says? He says, you are children of the light. Christians, you are children of the day. And so how should you live? Well, negatively, not like those in darkness, asleep and drunk, verse 6 and 7. Now, he slightly changes the way he uses asleep in these, first four, in these, forces, in these verses here, 4 to 8. Asleep and awake means slightly different things. We'll see that. So negatively, you're not asleep and you're not drunk, but positively, you are awake and you are sober. You're, you're living in a way which is ready for Jesus to come back. And what does that mean, says Paul? Well, verse 8, you, you put on your faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet again. Faith, love, hope. Do you remember week one? And it's likely that the imagery Paul is using it is that of God himself. So 700 years or so beforehand, when Isaiah was writing... He was writing to a people who were ignoring God. And God promises to come and stand against it, to deal with their sin, to to come and do it himself. Isaiah 59, 17, put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. 
And just as God was going to come and stand firm in the midst of sin and darkness, so he says God's people are to do the same. Like a sentry guard in the midst of battle, in the midst of the awful Thessalonian culture we thought about last time, they are to be fully armoured, standing firm, unshakable. Don't budge. Here's what's going on. Paul says, imagine like this. The Bible divides all of history in two. You've got before Jesus and you've got after Jesus. And before Jesus, sometimes it's described as darkness, as, as nighttime. And then Jesus, the light of the world, comes. And suddenly it's daytime, the lights are switched on. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the, shan- the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's Christmas. And so someone's come and flicked on the switch. The morning has dawned. But what that means is the two ages are overlapping all around us. For some people, it's nighttime still because they don't see the light of the world. There's darkness, there's confusion, there's mess. The Thessalonians see it all around them. But for others, those who have accepted the light, who have seen Jesus, it is light. It's daytime, the sun has risen. They're children of the day. They're to to live like it's the day with, with faith, with love, with hope. So Paul says, wake up. Christians, live as children of the day. Don't look around you at the rest of Thessalonian culture. Don't look around us at the rest of Oxford culture. Live as children of the day. But again, maybe some reading the letter, imagine you're a Thessalonian and it's read to you in your church. And the question is, well, how can I have hope? How can I put this, this helmet of salvation on my head? Paul, give me some thoughts. Maybe especially those who are muddled and fearing when Jesus comes back, and the confusions we thought about. And so he, he concludes the section in, in 9 and 10 by saying, For God didn't appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. It's a swap, do you see, in verse 9. At the cross, do you see, we don't suffer the wrath we deserve, but he does. We've just sung about it. And so we have the salvation that we don't deserve from him. It's a gift. Through his death, we have life, says Paul, so that we may live together with him. And that's where the hope is. We've said in previous weeks, and I had a discussion this week with someone, the, the world feels pretty hopeless at the moment in lots of ways. People look around and they look ahead. And even they look inside and it just feels hopeless, dark, difficult, bleak. We might have a weekend on the horizon. We might have a holiday that we're looking ahead to. We might have retirements perhaps. But it all just feels pretty bleak and hopeless. Is it going to get better? Is, is there anything out there that can help us? Anything worth living for? And the danger is that sort of bleakness gets into us and it takes over. And yet Paul seems to say, Christians, you are to be a people who are profoundly hopeful because you serve a king who will return. And so I just want to tie our thoughts together this morning with Sort of three ideas, things to think on briefly now, but perhaps to chew over more at home groups um, if you meet midweek in one of our home groups. Three things that Paul seems to say. 
first one is encourage each other about Christ's return. I find it very striking that the application Paul gives to both halves of the passage is to encourage each other about Christ's return. Do you get it? You see in 4.18 and in 5.11 as well, therefore encourage each other with these words and therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. Because of these truths, because of Easter Sunday, because Jesus will return one day, because of the hope we have, Well, encourage each other about that. Remind each other of that. Because we're a people who forget that. And this is a rhetorical question, but if I can be straight up and say, when was the last time you encouraged somebody about the reality of Jesus coming back? It's a convicting question, isn't it? It's not one we're that good at. Perhaps in our immediate and instant culture, it's just the sort of thing that we forget. Perhaps in our cynical and scientific culture, it's just the sort of thing we find hard to believe, to really grasp, to hold on to. In a world that screams at us to find your worth and your value and your security in what you have and in what you do and in the tangible and construct your bucket list and, and cram as much as you can into your life and squeeze every last second out of every last day. Paul says this is not all there is. Jesus is coming back one day. Encourage each other with that. And it's everybody doing it as well. I find that striking too. This is the body looking after itself. We're to be a, a community of hope. It's a corporate encouragement for one another. This isn't just the sort of super keeny premiership Christians who, who are good at that kind of thing. But it's all of us, whoever we might be. The second one is, is be holy because of Christ's return. And so it's Paul, Paul is saying, you are children of the day. You are not children of the, light, the night anymore. The light has dawned for you. And so friends, be alert and self-controlled. In practical terms, that's going to mean all kinds of different things in this room. We're very different people, different contexts, environment, different weeks, different weaknesses, different strengths. But I take it none of us can opt out from this. Be alert and self-controlled. Again, it's great being in a community where we have folk who have been Christians for months and people who have been trusting Christ for decades and decades. And that's great to see because it's a longer-term thing. It's a pace-yourself thing. The Christian life is a marathon. It's a daily Spiritually awake, looking ahead, faith, love, hope, living it out. But be ready for Jesus to come back. And then thirdly, be hopeful because of Christ's return. And clearly that's been right through the passage. Death is the taboo subject in our culture still. We're not good at talking about it. We're not good at accepting it. There's an irony that it is, it is completely inevitable, but it's hardly spoken about. 
We're, we're in a queue, each of us. And we're waiting, waiting for our turn. But Paul is adamant. He's adamant here, and the whole Bible is adamant, that death is not the end for the believer. We're to hold on to and we're to hold out the hope that we have in Christ, the humble assurance. So I spoke to my dad. I read this a little while ago in the Times. And the journalist, Caitlin Moran, she was commenting on a TV show called Two Feet in the Grave. The only moment of emotion that burst through was when Wilson went to interview Rab, whose teenage son, Boab, died in a train accident. Three days after Boab died, Rab realised that he just couldn't leave his son anywhere distant and buried him in his garden. He dug his grave himself. It's like when you tuck your wee in up at night, said Rab. He stared at a newly planted willow tree already rooting down into Boab's grave. He's sleeping. He will not cause me any more worries. He's done the worst he can do and now he's safe. And then she comments. The awful meaning of the words that having Boab's bones five paces from the back door was the nearest to peace he could ever know. It was a sledgehammer reminder of how little defence we all have in the face of our indispensably loved dying ones. That's true. The heart-wrenching reality of death. Hearts stop beating, blood stop flowing, lungs stop breathing, brains stop firing. And for each of us, they will do one day. But Paul says, friends, don't be uninformed. Don't be uninformed, because for the believer, death is not the end says Paul. Because of the resurrection, there is more to come. Jesus will return. Be hopeful because of Christ's return, says Paul. This is not all there is, says Paul. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we find this a profoundly personal and painful topic. And yet we thank you that because of Jesus being raised again, we thank you that we have hope. Help us please to think right about Jesus' return. Help us to remember he's coming back. But please help us to live right in the light of his return. Help us to live as people of the day, people who are ready who are sober, who are alert, who know what it means to live for you rather than self. Help us to be those who are awake. Now, might we be a place where, where death is not quite so taboo because we know the hope we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Oh,